March 22nd at 1230 p.m. and welcome to another edition of the Thoroughbred Daily News Writer's Room. My name is Bill Finley. I'm a correspondent for the Thoroughbred Daily News and also co-host the Down the Stretch Show with Dave Johnson on Sirius XM Radio. I am Randy Moss with NBC Sports uh, here in suburban Minneapolis where we're just beginning to get a little bit of spring. Some of the 80 inches of snow that we had here this winter is beginning to melt. You can actually see a few blades of grass here and there. So Ready to roll, Bill. Here in New Jersey, we got zero inches of snow in what was a very mild winter. It's a beautiful day here. By the way, Zoe Cadman is on assignment at the Ocala Breeder Sales. Oh, we'll talk with her next week. Randy, let's start off with what was one of the coolest stories of the weekend. It's been a, a really nice story for Thoroughbred Horse Racing over the last couple of years. Wayne Lucas did it again. He won the Essex Handicap at Oakland Park with Last Samurai. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is that, you know, we know the story, 87 years old, longevity, perseverance, still out there every single day. But what's different this year is that he's winning big races. And I went back and looked at his record. He went four years without winning a graded stakes race between Bravazo in 2018 and Secret Oath last year in the Honeybee Stakes. So not only is he winning, but there's a renaissance of Lucas. I mean, he's not going to be the Lucas of the mid 80s. He's not going to be Todd Pletcher of 2023, but all of a sudden he's got a barn full of good horses. He's in the conversation and boy, you know, this guy just puts a smile on your face. He's a remarkable credit to the game. And here he is again in the winner's circle and in the spotlight. It's always been curious to me, Bill, how even some of the great Hall of Fame trainers, as they get older, they have trouble getting horses as if all the experience that they've accumulated through the years just suddenly doesn't mean anything. So it's nice to see uh, somebody like Wayne, you know, have the success that he's had. Not just last Samurai with the back-to-back stakes wins, but obviously Secret Oath, who came back for her first start as a four-year-old and looked absolutely dynamic uh, beating Clarier a couple of weeks ago. So I I did a little bit of uh, statistical work too. Jerry Bailey tells me that I I go down rabbit holes all the time. (laughs) This was a pretty deep rabbit hole, Bill. Uh, So far, Wayne has won $1.7 million this year. That's through March 21st. I was curious, when's the last time Wayne won that much money in that exact time period? And I went all the way back to the year 2000, 23 years ago was the last time Wayne did that. And so then I thought to myself, well, what was going on with Wayne in the year 2000? And so I did a little more legwork. and. The big thing with Wayne during that time period in 2000, right? He was based at Santa Anita at the time. Uh, uh, In mid-February, he put four horses on a plane from Santa Anita. Uh, He he dropped off exchange rate in Shawnee country at the fairgrounds with his assistant, Mike Maker. And the plane, the Tech Sutton plane, went on to Florida carrying high yield and cash run. On Saturday, High Yield won the Fountain of Youth, and about a half hour later, uh, Shawnee Country upset Chaluki 
at 28 to 1 in a race that at the time at the fairgrounds was called the Devona Dale. Now it's called the Rachel Alexandra. The very next day, Sunday, Cash Run wins the Devona Dale at Gulfstream Park. So Wayne won two Devona Dales in back-to-back days. And then exchange rate uh, later on Sunday won the Risen Star. So they called it the Grand Slam in the newspapers back then. Four big stakes races in two days. And he also had Surfside that won three graded stakes at Santa Anita during that period of time. Uh, So Wayne was really clicking in 2000. But that's the last time that he has won this much money uh, early in the year through March 21st. Yeah, I mean, a couple of points to make. I mean, he's just getting started. A Secret Oath will go next in the Apple Blossom at $1 million. Uh, Last Samurai, I assume, will go next in the Oakland Handicap at $1 million. So, you know, this could be just a precursor of things to come. But you make a good point, Randy. I mean, this sport definitely has a built-in prejudice against trainers when they get into that age. And look at Ron McAnally. Uh, you know, here's a guy, a Hall of Famer, one of the greatest trainers ever. He's still training and you would hardly even know it. He has two or three horses. He owns them himself. You know, I'm sure he's very glad to be able to go out to the barn every day and have something to do. But, uh, you know, there's there's another trainer, Neil Drysdale, as he gets up into that age, another Hall of Fame trainer who's having um, a really hard time uh, getting things going or else getting things going uh, back to uh, when he was in his prime. And uh, I spoke to Lucas actually before uh, the weekend was talking about this, and he made a uh, a good point. I, I said, Wayne, you know, um, what about this are you doing so well? And what's the difference between you now and 20, 25 years ago? And he made an argument that he's a better trainer now because he said this is an experience-based game. He said, I'm still learning today at age 87. And he says, I know things now that I've learned over the last 20 years that I didn't know uh, in the 80s and 90s when I was dominating the sport. So, I mean, those are, that's my words, not his. He, did, he didn't say, you know, Wayne's not that arrogant to say that, that sort of thing. So, you know, his argument is that, you know, maybe I'm even better now at age 87 than I was when I was age 57. And as long as he's sharp mentally, which he obviously is, um, you know, you could look at that and say, hey, maybe he's got a point here. Yeah. I mean, two other great examples of that were Leroy Jolly and John Veach. I mean, mm-hmm. they dominated the 1970s to a certain extent. Uh, major stakes races galore. Uh, John Veach had to get out of training and become a racing official. You know, RIP just recently passed away. Uh, and the late Leroy Jolly had trouble getting any kind of decent horses. Uh, I remember talking to him. We had a race at uh, at Belmont Park for ESPN way back in the day. And I don't remember what the race was now or the horse. But Leroy Jolly surprisingly had a horse in it. I think it was for Loblolly Stable. I think he trained for them briefly. And so I remember going back and talking to him and, and you know, he kind of looked at uh, me and Jerry Bailey and said, can they vote you out of the Hall of Fame? <laughs> That's how much trouble he was having getting good horses back then. And you couldn't have any more and better experience than guys like Leroy Jolly and John Beach. Yeah. You know, and I think Secret Oath was really something that boosted his career. You know, um you talk about, you know, one of the greatest trainers of all time. It's funny to say boosted his career, but he was in a lull. He was not, you know, a guy that any prominent owners were giving horses to. Um, you know, he get a few decent horses here and there, but, you know, the big guys in the game were not supporting him at all. Um, the major owners that he had in his heyday had all passed away. So he was having to do with, you know, kind of second string horses uh, owned by people that really weren't prominent people in the business. 
I think Secret Oath, you know, reminded everybody this guy knows what he's doing. And it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward. I mean, I didn't ask Wayne this, but if I did ask him about his two-year-olds, I'd get the same answer that I've gotten for the last 35 straight years. I've never had a better bunch of two-year-olds in my life. Wait till you see these horses hit the racetrack. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, going forward. And, you know, people buying yearlings now uh, are uh, trusting that Lucas, when he so he's 89, would be 89 when they're three-year-olds. Can he get it done at 89? Can he get it done at 90 when they were four-year-olds? I mean, honestly, Randy, I don't see any reason why not. No, and he's clicking on all cylinders right now, Bill. Mark your calendars for the April Selected Horses of Racing Age Sale on Sunday, April 30th, kicking off Derby Week in the Bluegrass. Entry deadline for print catalogs is April 3rd. Approved supplements will be accepted until sale date. We'll be right back after this message from Keeper. If this place could talk, it would roar. It would say, this is racing. This beating heart in the heart of horse country. Steady and strong beneath the roar. Reminding us why. For the love of the horse. For generations to come. He was just put together like a machine and he had a great mind. Everything about him was what you'd want. Tis the law, pops the cork in the champagne. Tis the law is going to win the first leg of the Triple Crown. I've never seen him get tired. Respect the law, tis the law. His structure is just perfect. His bone is perfect. He's left the others behind. He's going to win the run, Happy Travers. He's everything you would look for in a horse. The TDN Writers Room is brought to you by Coolmore. Coolmore stallion Uncle Mo continues his hot streak this week with a new TDN Rising Star. Bishop Bay earned his honors in his second start, winning a fairgrounds allowance. This is the second Rising Star this month for Uncle Mo in his 14th overall. But he's not the only hot sire at Coolmore. Munnings, who had a $1 million filly at the OBS March sale on Wednesday and picked up back-to-back stakes winners on Saturday at Laurel with Nimitz Class and Lady Lowry. Monnings now has five stakes winners in 2023. Only Into Mischief and Uncle Mo have more stakes winners, and it ties him for third among all North American sires. The Jockey Club released its annual report from the Equine Injury Database uh, earlier this week. Once again, some very good news here. Um, We want the number to be zero, but it's not going to be. So we take the lowest number that we can get, and it was this year 1.25 fatalities per 1,000 starts. Now, to put that in perspective, that's a 10.1% decrease from last year. But even more pertinent, I think, Randy, is that when this started in 2009, the number was 2.0. That's a 37% decrease in the 14 years they've been keeping these records. And again, you know, this is one of those areas where, you know, we like to fault racing when racing deserves fault. This is one of those areas where the sport is really getting its act together. These numbers go down every single year. And I think they're going to continue to go down. Promising news out of this. Yeah, as is usually the case, uh, synthetic is at the very bottom as the safest surface and then turf uh, and then dirt. But the dirt, notably the dirt rate, the dirt fatality rate has dropped significantly from what it was, as you mentioned, you know, way back when. There's probably a lot of factors involved in that, but I think most important We went through a pretty rough time in the mid-2000s. First of all, there was the Barbaro injury in 2006 that 
It did garner a lot of sympathy from sports fans in general because of the way, you know, the ownership of Barbro felt about the horse and the efforts that were made to save him. But it still spotlighted a, you know, major injury at the highest level of the sport. And then two years later, uh, what happened to eight bells during the Kentucky Derby, immediately after the Kentucky Derby, really, really uh, resonated with a lot of non-sports fans. Uh, I remember being called to testify before the U.S. House of Representatives in the subcommittee. I mean, it could, the sport could not have been at a lower ebb at that point. Uh, and then the Santa Anita injuries that happened. Uh, the injury outbreak that happened uh, not all that long ago. So I think what that has done is even with maybe some people within the sport who were slow to embrace um, a major change and a major initiative for horse safety, I think those were real wake-up calls coming in succession. And I think now you're getting a lot more cooperation and a lot more understanding from people throughout the sport that this is a big, big deal. I mean, this is actually threatening the very existence of the sport of thoroughbred racing if nothing was done about it. Uh, there's been a, a, a great emphasis, especially in Southern California, but elsewhere too, on improved uh, pre-race veterinary examinations. Uh, there's been medication overhauls that are continuing right now with HISA. Uh, there's been a huge initiative underway to improve the safety of dirt racing surfaces uh, that horses run over. And I think the more we've learned about how to take care of those surfaces and make them safer, the better. So it's just a whole mixture of things, I think, Bill, that have gone into these numbers. And like you say, you know, you're never gonna do away with them completely, catastrophic injuries. Every time we have a show on ESPN, uh, used to be ESPN, on NBC, you know, we hold our breath until it's over, uh, but, it, it is going in the right direction, and it's fantastic news that these numbers are continuing to drop. Yeah, a couple other numbers from the um, study. Synthetic, as you mentioned, was the safest, 0.41. Turf was next at 0.99, and dirt at 1.44. Uh, they broke it down into the distances of races. For races that were eight furlongs or more, 0.86. From six to eight furlongs, 1.31. And less than six furlongs, 1.38. Another interesting thing I always find, um, you know, the animal rights people often make the argument that you shouldn't race two-year-olds, that it's dangerous to race them. They're not fully developed. Um, the numbers every year uh, are counter argument to that. It flies right in the face of it. The, the most, uh, the safest racing was two-year-old racing at 0.98 for three-year-olds, 1.13, and then four-year-olds and up, 1.34. Uh, Randy, I also want to get into California and what you said, and it, you know, the two major California racetracks, San Diego and Del Mar, are really at the forefront of this. And, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, the, just the crisis that happened at San Anita. So in 2019, that awful year where so many horses broke down and, um, you know, the uh, animal rights activists and the media and some politicians were just breathing down San Diego's neck. I mean, we were actually wondering if racing it was going to be barred in, in California because of that. So that number was 3.01 in 2019. Wow. It's down to 0.63, well below the national average at Santa Anita. Now, Del Mar's problems, uh, worst problems happened in 2016 when the number was 3.01. It was down to 0.56 in 2022. So, you know, kudos to Santa Anita and Del Mar 
And uh, you know, I think those are maybe good numbers for the rest of the industry to shoot for. If you can do 0.63 and 0.56 at Delmar, very comparable numbers. Can we do that throughout the industry? But you know, hats off to California. They, they've really got a uh, grasp of things out there and are getting things done. Yeah, I mean, I've got some uh, some very good friends that work in upper management at Santa Anita, and I and I can tell you, I mean, I know you know Bill. I'll tell everybody. I mean, almost every decision they make, there is a horse safety component to it. Now, you 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 cannot have horse safety any higher in the forefront of the minds of track managers than you have right, uh, right now at Santa Anita, and and I, I assume it's the same at Del Mar. And so I think that's largely behind uh, that plummeting of numbers that you see uh, at Santa Anita and Southern California in general. And uh, it's something that the rest of the country can shoot for. But progress is being made, I think, across the board. And that's a very good thing. Yeah, as you mentioned, they uh, canceled. Um, I didn't remember if they announced it today. I said canceled racing for Friday at Santa Anita. I mean, they get any kind of rain. They don't run. Um, but also, Randy, the, the thing that they've done, I think, that has um, contributed so much as are these veterinary checks that they do. And, you know, I was writing a story um, in 2022, I believe we talked about this on the show, that there were not one single fatality in a dirt race at Santa Anita of um, a breakdown. There was a heart attack or, or, or something like that. And, you know, everybody said the reason why is because we go over these horses with a fine tooth comb. And if there's anything wrong with them, uh, they are not allowed to run. Now, I realize, you know, some of the smaller tracks don't have the resources that Santa Anita has, the money to afford all these veterinarians or whatnot. But, you know, I think that all of racing needs to take a look at this. You know, do we need to have the same sort of, um, you know, should XYZ Downs be doing what Santa Anita and Del Mar, and again, Del Mar is doing? And again, maybe there is a cost aspect of it, but, you know, they have provided a blueprint for what to do here to keep racing as safe as possible. And I wish other tracks, more tracks would follow it. Yeah, babe, would you ever have imagined a racetrack 25 years ago uh, canceling a card days in advance because of a forecast of two to three inches of rain? No, no, it, it was never even considered, right? Even in Southern California, which hardly ever gets rain like that it, it, until the last couple of years. You would never have even never have even thought about it, right? Um, and it doesn't. It you know it it's come with a price. The field sizes at Santa Anita are smaller now than they used to be, and that obviously has to have an impact on the handle. But as as part of that, I mean, we see this phenomenon. We've seen it in the past at racetracks. It's it's been going on as long as racing secretaries have been riding races. If you have a race that comes up let's say an allowance race that comes up with four horses uh, and a racing secretary really wants to card the race, they will do what is called hustling other horsemen to run horses in the race to fill it to a level at which they can actually be carded. So in the past, racing secretaries at Santa Anita, like everywhere else, would call trainers and say, hey, you know, what are you doing with such and such a horse? Can you help us out and run them in this allowance race? And the horse may or may not have been physically 100% ready to run in that race, but the trainers may have felt pressured because they have to ask these same racing secretaries for stall space the next year. So they feel pressured to cooperate as much as they can. And so to a certain extent, that was putting, that practice 
has put some horses at risk running when they otherwise would not have been running and maybe weren't ready to run. They don't do that anymore at Santa Anita. And I think it's it's happened less and less often at other racetracks around the country as well. So as we said, a lot of things have gone into this, uh, but uh, hey, hats off to, uh, to racetrack managers around the country who are putting horse safety uh, at the forefront of the decisions that they make. It'll be interesting to see what the effect of Heiza is now. I mean, we talk about Heiza and we have Lisa Lazarus on in just a bit um, as our green group guest of the week about, you know, the integrity issues. But let's not forget, you know, they are tackling um, issues of uh, racetrack safety as well. Matter of fact, there's a story that broke yesterday that they are, are and she talks a little bit about this, that they are, are threatening to cut off uh, Turf Paradise's right to send their signal out uh, because they're not satisfied with some safety aspects at Turf Paradise. Um, that's not to pick on just Turf Paradise. I'm sure there are other tracks that are having right. issues, but they basically said, you fix this or else. And that's not a component that we've had in horse racing up until now. So with Heiza being uh, in, in responsible for so much of these safety issues in 2023, can we get that number down again? I bet you we will. Uh, speaking of Santa Anita, how about Zoe Cadman? Once again, she caught up with all things Santa Anita on First Things First. She's going to talk about what's going on at the Noble Three-Wit Health Center. Here's First Things First with Zoe. I'm here at Santa Anita Park's best kept secret. This is the Noble Three-Wit Health Center right behind me. All you need is one of these, which is a track license. They serve over 4,000 patients each and every year. Dental, doctor, and vision. I'm going to go in, find out a little bit more, and Get the choppers cleaned. Come on. I have a 10.30. So this is Cliff and he runs the Backstretch Center here. Tell me a little bit about what you do here and about Noble Freeway. Well, Noble Freeway, did you see his pictures all over the wall, the photos from all his winners? Uh, he was really uh, one of the founders of this clinic. This goes back to the early 90s. Joe McAnally, uh, Noble Freeway, Dr. Matz. It started as a little dental clinic over where the Winners Foundation now is and expanded about 1995 into this building where we sit. We see probably, uh, we have about 6,000 patient visits a year at our three clinics. This is by far the wow. largest one. We do about three quarters of the business here at Santa Anita. And uh, there isn't a day goes by where we don't have people sitting in the lobby waiting to be served. See a doctor cost them five dollars. Obviously, if they go out on the outside and see a doctor, the market is probably you know a hundred dollars to see a doctor. Just like that, no fillings and nice clean teeth. Thank you, Noble. Join us this weekend for Santa Anita Fried Chicken Day. Going to be finger licking good at Santa Anita. And don't forget, if you like the spring carnival, April 1st, 2nd, and April 8th and 9th is Santa Anita's spring carnival, as well as the grade one Santa Anita Derby on April the 8th. And if you feel like running, we have the Santa Anita Derby Day 5K as well. So this doesn't involve fried chicken, but it's... Good news, nonetheless, from the PHBA, the TDN Writers Room, brought to you, as always, by the PHBA. 
The horse is already nominated for their 2023 two-year-old PA Sire PA Bread Stallion Series are now live on the PHBA website, but it's not too late to nominate your two-year-olds to that series. In fact, if you do so before March 31st, the nomination fee is only $500. If you wait after that, it goes up to $1,000 for new owners who purchased a two-year-old at public auction or at a private sale. Now's the time to learn more. Visit pabread.com for additional information. Here in Pennsylvania, we're proud of our breeding program, the best in North America, but we're also proud to be leaders in this industry. The PA Horse Breeders Association is funding cutting edge research at Penn Vet to detect gene doping in thoroughbreds. And we endorsed the SAFE Act to help protect the most vulnerable horses. Plus, we're pleased to support the aftercare programs set up by our horsemen's groups. Just a few of the reasons why you should join us in Pennsylvania, the premier place to breed and race. What makes Woodford special is the attention to detail Everyone on the team is doing their job. They're well qualified. They show up to work and they work hard and they care about the horse. And I think that's a reflection on uh, John Gleason's program. He gives me good information. He always has, uh, he has a very good understanding of the horse's well-being, where they're at physically and mentally. In equine nutrition, there's a triangle, management, genetics, and nutrition. And John's criteria to accomplish that is at the highest pinnacle. I started breaking quarter horses for people when I was 15. You know, people send me quarter horses to break. And that's all I've done. You know, I don't hunt, I don't fish. I focus on training horses. I think about training horses on eating dinner, laying in bed before you go to sleep. And if you roll over in the middle of the night, I think about a horse. And it's, you know, it's all consuming. And I think to be successful, it has to be. The TDN Writers Room is brought to you by Woodford Thoroughbreds. Discover the Woodford Edge, a 1,000-acre world-class facility in Reddick, Florida, breeding and selling their own stock, as well as offering breaking and training services to outside clients. Setting up to be a big spring for Woodford, two aspiring classic hopefuls that they train will make their next starts this Saturday at Fairgrounds when Hoosier Philly targets the Fairgrounds Oaks and Curly Jack sets his sights on the Louisiana Derby. Meanwhile, two three-year-olds that they bred are also eyeing their next move. Keep an eye on Mimi Kazushi, let's see what she's up to, or Rocket Can breezed a bullet at Payson on Friday on his way to either the Florida Derby or the Bluegrass. And now it's time for the fastest horse of the week, brought to you by the Fast Stallions at Windstar Farm, such as the stallion that Elliot Walden once said was one of the fastest horses he ever had. Which stallion was that? Well, first, the fastest horse of the week. And for the second straight week, that horse comes from Laurel Park in last Saturday's Harrison E. Johnson Memorial. Nimitz Class sailed to a six and a half length victory and earned a 103 buyer speed figure in the process. It was the third straight stakes win at Laurel and the second straight triple digit buyer for the four-year-old son of Munnings owned and bred by Tom Poulter. Nimitz Class was such a troublemaker as a youngster that the farm nicknamed him Bad Chad. But now he has straightened out to the tune of eight wins from 14 lifetime starts. A TDN podcast salute to our fastest horse of the week, Nimitz Class. Now, what about that fast sire at Windstar? As a three-year-old in 2020, Nashville blew up the charts with a bullet by winning his first three starts by a combined 24 and three quarters lengths, the third of which was the Perryville Stakes on the Breeders' Cup undercard in which he set a Keeneland track record for six furlongs 
107.89 that still stands. Not only does it still stand, it would have won the last two Breeders' Cup sprints by a wide margin. If speed is key, then Nashville has plenty to share and he enters his first season at stud at Windstar for a fee of $15,000. The Green Group is an accounting and tax consulting advisory firm specializing in the thoroughbred industry with over 500 clients in the horse business and proven strategies to save you taxes. You can learn more at www.greenco.com. And welcome in now this week's Green Group Guest of the Week, Lisa Lazarus, the CEO of the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority. Always good to talk to Lisa, but never more important than right now because on Monday, a seismic change in horse racing. The HISA will take over under the Horse Racing Integrity and Welfare Unit, basically the kit and caboodle when it comes to drug testing, penalties for drugs, et cetera. Uh, so we're going to have a new era in horse racing starting Monday. Lisa, welcome. And I'm gonna get right to the question I think is foremost on everybody's mind. How will this system be better at catching the cheaters than the old system? So, Bill, I think there's a number of reasons. Um, probably the, the, the biggest one is that our test distribution plan is going to be investigations and intelligence-led. Um, we are not going to be relying primarily on post-race testing in order to discern, you know, who actually is breaking the rules. Um, we've got a very robust investigative team um, head by, headed by Sean Richards, who was the FBI agent who actually was the one who worked up all the evidence in the prosecutions in the Southern District um, involving uh, Navarro and service, et cetera. And so we, we really are focusing on the intelligence. Um, and I think the other reason is lab harmonization, which means that the labs that are going to be part of our program are working together to test for the same panels of substances at the same levels. And I think those are probably the two biggest game changers. Mm -hmm. So, Lisa, we've been trying to keep up with all this, of course, over the last few months, and you almost have to have a law degree to, uh, to <laughs> sort out exactly what's going on from week sure. to week to week. Can you give us an update on what the legal challenges are at this point? And is there any chance that the Monday, March 27th rollout could be delayed? So I'll start with the last question, which is no, I don't think there's any chance. Um, there's no pending legal action that could be resolved um, prior to or even on Monday. Um, everything that's sort of pending that was filed to stop the ADMC program from going to effect has been given a kind of later or delayed scheduling order. Um, in terms of the pending lawsuits, um, I'm sure you know that the Sixth Circuit ruled that has was constitutional about a few weeks ago. That was the only court to rule on what I'll call the new law, you know, the, the highest statute post the legislative amendment. Um, we still have the Fifth Circuit case that was been remanded back to the district court, sort of going through the process. Um, but that's really, and then we still have the, the injunctions in Louisiana and West Virginia. So this program will not roll out on Monday in Louisiana and West Virginia because of those injunctions. Now, Lisa, we know these things don't happen quickly overnight, but just in general, maybe for pick a time frame, the first year, let's say, if we're talking March 27th, 2024, what are your expectations for this program? What are your goals for this program? And do you think you're going to catch a lot of quote unquote bad guys? So I think I'll start with my goal. My goal, probably my biggest goal is for the industry to recognize this is actually a very positive step forward. Um, you know, right now there's a lot of like distrust. There's a lot of trepidation. Folks are anxious, which I completely understand. 
for me, what I expect will happen, but also what's one of my, probably my biggest goal is that once we've been operating for a while, horsemen will look around and say, you know what, like this is what we really needed. We needed uniform rules. We needed sort of one central body to, to take this over. And this actually is better because I don't want to have to worry that the guy I'm competing against isn't, you know, isn't, isn't competing fairly. Um, and that's obviously every, every athlete, every sportsman, every horseman, I think deserves to be able to compete in a level playing field. And I think that's what we're going to get, you know, sort of a recognition is really happening. Also professionalization, you know, on day one, you're going to see the test collectors walk into the test barn with iPads. You know, we're going to have a paperless collection system that's sort of robust, that's reliable. And also, you know, I think we'll have a lot more transparency. And so folks will realize they can kind of watch and see how the program folds out. Um, so that's the first thing. In terms of chat catching cheaters, um, you know, I have to say, and I say it all the time, I'm agnostic on whether or not there are a lot of cheaters um, in horse racing because my, you know, it's not my my role to make judgments about that. What I can say is that I believe we have the best program in place to catch them if they're out there. I really do. So you mentioned the trepidation by some people. I think some owners and trainers, part of it, I suppose, is fear of the unknown, fear of something new. But I know there's a concern is something going to happen that will keep me from being able to run my horse? So what are the can't run flags or the various circumstances that could prevent an owner or trainer from running a horse? So the can't raise flags are totally different from the anti-doping program. Um, as I'm sure you know, Randy, we launched the HISA in July of last year, 2022. And at that point, um, it was required that every trainer, um, owner, uh, jockey, horse, be registered with HISA. And because it's taken some time for us to get, you know, fully 100% operational on the portal and the IT side, we didn't want to, you know, heavily sanction folks in the beginning as we were sort of making sure we were running properly. And we also didn't want to sort of interfere with racing. And so to the extent that folks weren't registered, we, we took enforcement actions against them post-race and dealt with it that way. Starting um, March 27th, starting Monday, if you are not registered with HISA, you will not be able to actually enter into a race. You'll be stopped at the entry box. And that's definitely a change. Um, we feel confident in that because we've been working really hard to make sure that um, we have very few unregistered folks. And only and those who are unregistered are, are actually sort of intentionally not registering. And then obviously we need to take action there. The other couple of things that could potentially stop you from racing is if you're a jockey, you have to have your concussion baseline and your medical your annual medical exam, um, not the exams themselves, but you have to have the dates that they were that they were actually um, taken in in the system, and that's a requirement. That's a health and safety issue, and we're we're working really hard with all the jockey reps to make sure that's that's kind of done and ready by Monday. And I think I'm not I'm not that concerned that we're going to have any outliers. I think everybody will be resolved by then. Lisa, I think one thing that also horsemen will come to like is the idea that you're really differentiating between the drugs that are performance enhancing and the drugs that are medication overages, and also are going to put drugs that are medications that you believe are the result of environmental contamination into still another category where perhaps, uh, depending on the circumstances, somebody wouldn't even be penalized for that. Could you explain how all this is, uh, is going to work and, and the, the idea behind this that let's go after the things that are really making these horses improving their performance rather than uh, mistakes that trainers might make with overages that are really not intended to quote unquote dope a horse? Sure. So I came to this job with actually like a lot of experience in running equine anti-doping programs and sport horses. 
And my kind of cumulative experience there was a good program gets rid of cheaters, deals with mismanagement and lack of professionalism in a kind of balanced, appropriate way, but doesn't penalize actors in the system for things they can't control. So those are the kind of the three prongs for me. I mean, that's what you really need, I think, to have a fair, robust, kind of helpful um, and doping program. So one of the things I think we don't get enough kind of recognition for, because this didn't exist anywhere else in horse racing, to, to my knowledge, is that we completely separated the rule book into two categories, which you've just referenced. The banned substances, which are the doping substances, versus the controlled medications, which are the therapeutics. And we take a very different philosophical approach to those two categories. If you have a banned substance in a horse, which is a performance enhancer, something that should never be in a horse, the, the penalties are severe. They're severe, they're swift, and they will be game-changing. If you make a mistake or if you have a therapeutic overage, you'll, you'll, you know, there'll be consequences, but they'll be proportionate to the, to the violation. And the other thing which I think is so important is that we have a policy called the atypical findings policy, which basically has 27 different substances. That if they're detected in a horse's system, we know it's almost certain to be to be contamination. It's far more likely than not to be contamination. And those go through a different process. And if Haiwu is satisfied after looking at those a little bit more deeply that it really is contamination, there's no loss of purse. There's no sanction. It's like it never happened. Um, and that is, I think, a really important policy and one that, you know, we don't get enough credit for, I think, at Haiza, because I still hear so many like there's picograms and contamination. And um, we've been thoughtful about these things. And I think that the, the program, you know, strikes the right balance. So a follow-up question from me um, on sort of on the same topic. One thing that also has frustrated people in racing is a trainer gets caught with something and they, they lawyer up, they appeal, they lose their appeal to the racing commission, they go to courts. Uh, you might have a situation where somebody is caught with a, a substance and they're still training and, and, and still active in the sport two years later. Is that going to change and, and how so? Yes, very significantly. So specifically on the banned substance side, the minute you have a positive A sample for a banned substance, you're suspended and your horse is suspended. They're called provisional suspensions. And then you have an opportunity, if there's, if there's something really compelling that you think would change the mind of the regulator, if they knew, you have the chance to have a, a provisional suspension hearing you know, within 48 hours or almost as soon as you want to present any of that compelling evidence. And if there's a really good reason, of course, it can be lifted. But what's important about that is it changes, it changes the burden, right? So suddenly the trainer becomes interested in things happening quickly because he or she is suspended during the pendency of the hearing. It doesn't motivate delay, you know, and that I think is one of the biggest problems in the current system is that anybody who's, who's charged with a violation is incentivized to delay because the longer they delay, the, you know, they can keep running. And, and the new program completely shifts that. So I've, I've got a couple more questions here. First of all, uh, we saw famously a few years ago, Churchill Downs on its own decided to have a zero tolerance rule for the Kentucky Derby. And of course, Medina Spirit tests positive for a very small amount of beta-methasone. Can a racetrack like Churchill Downs, a race like the Kentucky Derby, make their own rules? Or does everything now fall under the HISA umbrella? And would Medina Spirit test positive in the, you know, in the new HISA rules? So I don't, I'm not sure that I, I know about their zero tolerance policy or what exactly the levels were for the beta-methasone. Um, so I can't speak to that. But what I can say is that HISA is the standard. It's not a minimum standard. So, and, and for the anti-doping program, HISA takes the whole space. 
So we take everything from, you know, test distribution, planning, selection, all the way through to prosecutions. So you can't have um, a rule in the anti-doping space in horse racing post-March 27th that's different from Heise's rule. And the other question, I know horsemen are, are concerned about biphosphonate use. Uh, in 2014, the FDA approved two biphosphonates for use in, in uh, mature racehorses, four-year-olds and up. They're primarily used for foot issues, for navicular syndrome or, or navicular disease. And according to the National Library of Medicine, it, biphosphonates can bind to a skeleton for several years with a residual prolonged effect and no pharmaceutical reversal available. And correct me if I'm wrong, biphosphonates will be banned in a horse's system beginning on Monday how will the possible residual effect in racehorses be addressed? Sure. So we've issued a number of communications on this. Um, and I, just to be really clear, um, Heisek cannot sanction anything that took place prior to our effective date. So assuming that's going to be going to be Monday, March 27th, any administration pre-March 27th does not disqualify a horse and is not a violation. So one is we've asked horsemen if you have records, if you have proof that your horse was treated by phosphonates before March 27th, you know, please hold on to that. That obviously will make it easier for us to determine whether or not this is a post-March 27th administration. But, but even if those don't exist, we will do a scientific analysis and review of each biphosphonates positive, um, and only if we're convinced that it was a post-March 27th administration would we take that case forward. Oh, Lisa, let me segue to the other very important part of HISA, which is safety. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, this week, we got some very good numbers from the uh, Equine Injury Database, shows that the sport is definitely heading in the right direction so far when it comes to safety and breakdowns. But uh, there are some tracks where, um, you know, there are some problems, in particular Turf Paradise, uh, which has had um, some safety issues, a lot of breakdowns, et cetera. Um, what is going to be the, are, are you going to bring the heat down further on them? And uh, if you're not satisfied, and it's not just them, any racetrack where you're not satisfied that they're doing what needs to be done for safety, um, what would be the ramifications? Yeah. So one is we started our racetrack accreditation process or program just this past weekend with Tampa Bay Downs as the first track. Um, we have, you know, ongoing dialogue with the racetracks and, you know, it took us a little bit of time to get that program together and to roll it out. But now it's a it's a primary focus of HISA. Um, you know, with Turf Paradise, there, there's actually going to be an order uploaded to our ruling system today where you'll see that the board has held them um, to a very specific defined uh, requirements around repairs of the track. And if they don't um, if they don't live up to the obligations, they will no longer be able to, to run covered horse races starting April 1st. They have a short time window in which to get some very important safety um, safety violations or at least safety concerns resolved, and that's the approach we're going to take with anyone who's similarly situated. Uh, you know, the safety of horses and and the jockeys who are on their backs is you know one of Heise's greatest sort of obligations and responsibilities, and we take it very seriously. And there will be very serious repercussions, and those repercussions can run from obviously a fine to a, you know, required time frame to, to make changes all the way up to not being able to run covered horse races. Are you expecting to see smaller racetracks, other smaller racetracks with limited means uh, struggle to comply with HISA regulation? No, I really don't. Unless, I mean, there's, so there's two, there's sort of two situations that we face, right? We face 
sometimes there are race chapter commissions that just philosophically don't like HISA and they're like, we don't like federal regulation. We don't think you belong here. And, you know, I can't do anything with that. I didn't make the law. I didn't, you know, I'm just here to kind of run things. Right. So if I can't convince folks um, that that's, that it's worthwhile to kind of work with us, then, then kind of that is what it is. But on this side where you're talking about smaller racetracks who actually really care about safety, and there are a lot of those, you know, we work with them. We have ways to kind of be efficient around, around their costs. We have ways to work with payment plans. We have ways to kind of work with the commissions. So if you're willing to, to, to try to reach the goals that we feel like you need to reach, um, we will find a way forward. There's not a single racetrack that said, I want to work with you. I want to do this. I just don't have enough money right now that we've said, okay, we can't, you know, we're going to, we're going we're gonna to hold you accountable. And Lisa, on that same sort of subject from the beginning of this, there's been a lot of talk about how, how is this going to be paid for? And um, there's different avenues. Um, the first hope is, I guess, that the racing commissions will pay for it. But are, are we going to see uh, the talk of start fees? Is that going to start happening anywhere? Um, if so, what places might they happen and what might be the amount that uh, the owner would have to pay uh, so far as the start fee to, to comply with ISA? So I don't really I can't really answer that question because that is something that I think is sort of unresolved still for a lot of the commissions, of the race checks. That's their call, how they choose to raise the money. Pay for HISA. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of things happening right now um, in various states. Like, for example, there's a couple of states that have gone to their state governments and actually passed um, passed laws, passed resolutions where they've been able to to get the funding out of maybe a casino or some other resource that wasn't previously there. Um, we have, you know, for the most part, we have um, you know coming out of racetracks and purse funds, and typically it's a 50 split between the racetracks and the horsemen. Um, I haven't seen very many starter fees. I can't say that they won't happen, but I'm not aware of any at this point in time. Are you getting any sleep? <laughs> <laughs> not a lot of sleep. <laughs> Definitely not a lot of sleep. Um, but that's okay because I am like incredibly excited. And I, if there's things to still get done, I want to make sure we get them done. So I've got one more for you, Lisa, and sure. it won't be nearly as clever as Randy's last uh, <laughs> question. I apologize that, but um from covering this, it, it's been so difficult because you need a law degree. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you mentioned earlier the Fifth Circuit, Sixth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit did not rule in favor of HISA. The Sixth Circuit did. Correct. The Fifth Circuit includes uh, two states that have racing, Louisiana and Texas. Does that mean HISA is now not in effect, will not be in effect on March 27th in those two states? Um, and if, if that is the case, um, what does that mean going forward? So no mandate ever issued in that case. So there, there's no actual operational effect to the constitutionality case in the Fifth Circuit. Um, Louisiana and West Virginia are subject to an injunction. So we're not operating in those states. But that's that wasn't the constitutionality case. That was the Administrative Procedures Act case, which I know is really confusing and just sort of emphasizes your point about having needing a law degree. Um, but the short short the short answer is we're not operating in Louisiana and West Virginia because of an injunction that was issued. Um, on a, in a case that was challenging some of our rules related to the Administrative Procedures Act. Um, Texas uh, is not subject to the injunction. We are operational in Texas, um, but we don't have jurisdiction over the Texas racetracks because um, the Texas Racing Commission has, has instructed them not to export their signal. Now, that was the case in 2022. My understanding is that they recently relaxed um, that, that prohibition but um, nonetheless, uh, I guess Sam Houston decided not to not to export their signal. 
And by failing to export their signal means that we have no jurisdictional, there's no interstate commerce. And so we don't have um, authority over any racetrack that doesn't export their signal. And what does your legal team uh, tell you when uh, the question is asked, might this wind up in the Supreme Court? You know, I think it's probably 50-50 now. I, the question about the Supreme Court, I think, is will probably be very much driven by what the Fifth Circuit does under the revised law, right? Because we only have, as I said, one court that has ruled on the revised law. You know, Heise's view is that the Fifth Circuit identified an issue that it, that it, that it believed rendered the old law unconstitutional. And we fixed that issue with the legislative amendment. So we believe that the physical will now come back and say, okay, Haiza is now, you know, you heard us, you've listened to us, Haiza is now constitutional. And if there are two circuits that are in agreement, the chances of the Supreme Court taking cert, accepting the case, um, are, are lower. Now, it's not impossible. The Supreme Court could take whatever case they want. Um, and obviously, this one has, has you know, s- significant meaning um, for, for the state. It's a federal law that's, that's being applied um, across the country. So... It's hard to know for sure, but certainly the chances are higher if the Fifth Circuit finds it unconstitutional again. Mm-hmm. So when we when we reconvene here, Lisa, this is Tuesday, March 21st. When we reconvene mm-hmm. on March 21st, 2024, what will you like to have seen transpire in that uh, in that year? So one is I would like to have gained the trust of the majority of horsemen and players in the industry. You know, you know, you may agree or disagree about a rule here or there, and that's all good. That's all part of the dialogue. But I, I really hope that and believe that we'll have the majority saying, okay, this is actually what we needed. You know, we needed a uniform system, we needed uniform rules. This is good. And this is this actually professionalizes our sport um, to a different, to a different level. Um, and I hope that. You know, horsemen will feel like they have a chance to, as long as they're doing the right things, they're taking care of their horses, that they're going to get a level playing field. Um, and I hope the public sees racing, horse racing in a different way, you know, um, safer and, and with more integrity. And I hope that our customer, um, the horse player, the gambler, also feels like there is an, an enhanced sort of reliability or credibility to the results. Lisa Lazarus, it's going to be a busy week for you and a very important day in horse racing, Monday, March 27th, when Heisa takes over drug testing, drug enforcement, et cetera. Thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the Thank Third Red Daily News Writers Room podcast. Thank you both so much. I appreciate your time. As this week's guest of the week, Lisa Lazarus will receive another free one-hour tax consultation from the Green Group, an accounting and tax consulting advisory firm specializing in the thoroughbred industry. Again, learn more at www.greenco.com. Are you paying too much in taxes? The Green Group can help. There's a reason the most successful owners, breeders, and horsemen select the Green Group as their tax advisors. They save you money and share successful strategies. Over the past 40 years, the Green Group founder, Len Green, has owned and bred some of the best racehorses in the history of the sport, like Eclipse Award-winning champions Jaywalk and Wonderwheel. His DJ stable competes at the highest level and has received the game's most prestigious honors. Len Green's in-depth, hands-on industry knowledge, combined with cutting-edge tax-saving strategies, has produced positive results for his clientele and has made the Green Group the top-rated accounting and tax firm in the thoroughbred business. For a confidential and complimentary consultation, contact us at 732-634-5100 or visit our website at www.greenco.com. The Green Group, proven strategies to save you taxes. 
with some of the fullest fields in the country and quality racing year-round. There's never been a better time to reap the rewards of breeding and racing in Kentucky. Purse money in Kentucky is at an all-time high, as is average purse per race, outpacing California, Florida, and New York. Kentucky Breds. Breed them. Raise them. Race them. We all win. You can reap the rewards of breeding and racing in Kentucky. Purse money hit an all-time high in Kentucky. $165.4 million in 2022, which topped the 2021 total by over $30 million. That's an average purse per race of $77,000 outpacing all other states. What else is up in Kentucky? Importantly to betters, field size. The average field size in Kentucky now 8.4. That's higher than Florida, New York, or California. And over $200 million has been distributed to Kentucky breeders since 2006. With quality racing year-round, there is no better time to breed and race in the bluegrass. For more information, visit KentuckyBreds.com. Breed them, raise them, race them. We all win. Time to give us your uh, for us to give you our thoughts on the big weekend races. And Randy, obviously, want to start at the fairgrounds. And this is the beginning of the last round of Kentucky Derby preps, the ones where the winners get 100 points towards the Kentucky Derby. And of course, the Louisiana Derby uh, is on the fairgrounds. Carl, let's, I, I want to look at three races. Why don't we go in, in chronological order? Because there's three races that are really going to garner a lot of attention. And we start with the ninth, which is the New Orleans Classic. And Art Collector is in there. Um, many believe he's the top horse in racing right now, uh, which he earned uh, uh, which the argument began when he won the Pegasus World Cup by four and a half lengths. And uh, that has been uh, a key race. I didn't think the field was for a Pegasus was all that strong going in, but Stiletto Boy was third. He's come back to win the Sandina Handicap. Last Samurai was fourth. We already talked about him for Wayne Lucas. He won the Essex in the Razorback. White Aberio uh, was in there. He came back and won allowance race. Skippy Longstocking came back and won the grade three um, and was it the Endeavor Stakes? I'm not really sure, but he won a grade three stakes race at um, Tampa Bay Downs on Tampa Bay Derby Day. Our collector will be an obvious favorite coming off what was um, arguably the best race of his career. Can they beat him, Randy? Uh, the only horse I can see in here that's got a shot to beat him, Bill, would be West Willpower. Uh, the, you know, the Brad Cox factor at the fairgrounds where he's batting 41% right now uh, in West Willpower's last race. At Oaklawn Park in the Razorback, he was second to uh, our aforementioned trainer, D. Wayne Lucas, and Last Samurai by just a length and a half with after a pretty aggressive move early in the race by Joel Rosario. It could possibly have cost West Willpower a little bit of starch uh, during the latter part of that. So eight to five in the morning line for our collector, two to one for West Willpower. I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, you've got a local horse that's been doing really well at the fairgrounds at least until his last start, uh, named Happy American. Uh, but I think he's uh, he's kind of overmatched in here. To me, it looks like uh, pretty much a two-horse race. You might be able to make a small case for Pioneer Medina uh, and Todd Pletcher, um, who's coming off a, a victory in the mine shaft at the fairgrounds. Before that, second to Skippy Longstocking at Gulfstream Park. But I think it comes down to Art Collector and West Willpower. Yeah, I mean, I think Pioneer Medina has a chance. I'm just wondering a little bit about the pace here. Um, the one horse treasury is, you know, cheap speed uh, coming out of allowance win. Doesn't look like he's got much of a chance. He'll definitely go to the front. Both Art Collector and West Willpower like to be pretty forwardly placed. Uh, a matter of fact, 
both their last starts, they did not go to the lead, but before that were uh, going to the lead pretty much every time out um, early on in the pace. You've got Flavian Pratt and Junior Alvarado. I would imagine they would look at the race as I am. Just let this treasury horse go on about his business and, you know, sit off of him and, and, and you know, go, go make your move uh, and take over maybe midway down the backstretch or something like that. Tactically, this could be really interesting. And here's why. Because you pointed out Art Collector from post two, West Will Power from post three. All right. Both like to be forwardly placed. Uh, I think Junior Alvarado aboard Art Collector has got to be concerned about taking behind Treasury a little bit and moving to the inside. Because if that happens, then right. that opens the door for the jockey of West Willpower, who is Flavian Pratt, to move to the outside of Art Collector and keep him pinned in behind that cheap speed, behind Treasury, which is not a spot that Junior Alvarado wants to be at all. So it's going to be a nice little cat and mouse game going into the first turn. And I could totally see Junior Alvarado trying to prevent that from happening and getting a nice stalking spot just to the outside flank, certainly not behind, tucked in behind Treasury uh, around that first turn and going into the backstretch. Yeah, we'll see how that all comes out. And if Art Collector wins, uh, he will solidify his status as the top older horse in the country. But uh, Last Samurai is uh, breathing down his neck. The Fairgrounds Oaks presented by Fasic Tipton is the 11th race. And, and Randy, to me, this is the, I mean, it's not the premier race on the car because that's Louisiana Derby, but this is the most interesting race because of the mystery of Hoosier Philly. Yeah. And uh, you, we know the story. I mean, you, me, and, and, and everybody we know, Tom Amos was raving about this horse coming into the Rachel Alexander. Tom Amos had said this is the best horse uh, he's ever trained. And she ran a dud in, in the Rachel Alexander, a third beat in eight and a half lengths. I know Tom has said he didn't thought the trip affected her a little bit. She, she did stumble, um, kind of lose her footing for a, a brief period early on in the race. But even Amos admitted to me when I talked to him that uh, at the top of the stretch, I mean, she sort of had dead aim on those horses and she just had no punch. Um, I have no idea what happened to her. I do know that if the Hoosier Philly from uh, last year shows up, she should win this. But um, I, I can't take her off that race, particularly at, at uh, you know, it's only a, a five-horse field, so nobody's going to be a big price in here. Um, there's three obvious contenders and pretty mischievous in the alleys looking who's your filly. But I have to say, look, I love Tom Amos. I, um, he, he told me he still thinks this is the best horse he ever trained. I respect his opinion, but I got to try to beat her uh, in here. And I think I'll go with Brendan Walsh and pretty mischievous. Uh, she's on a roll right now as one two straight, including the Rachel Alexander, where she you know, beat Hoosier Philly handily in there. The Alleys look for Brad Cox also, obviously, is a, is a big contender in there. Yeah, it's only a five-horse field. Uh, let me skip through the other four horses and give you opinions on them real quick before I finish up with Hoosier Philly. The one-horse Southlawn, trained by Norm Cassie, who's having a fantastic uh, winter so far, uh, especially at Oakland Park, comes off a really strong eight-length win uh, against lesser competition with a good speed figure. After a throat procedure, she apparently had had a breathing issue uh, jockey Tyler Gaffleone had told Norm Cassie that she was making noises when she ran. So they had the breathing issue. Uh, you know, sometimes that's just an excuse, you know, whatever. But she did show marked improvement uh, in her first start at the fairgrounds after having that throat operation. And so she's got the rail. She's not without a shot. Christian Doro, number two, is only running in this race because uh, her stablemate flying connection uh, in the Todd Fincher barn is running Sunday in the Sunland Oaks. So they separated him. She'll probably set the pace. And she'll be a big long shot in here. 
pretty mischievous. She didn't have the greatest trip either. Not nearly as bad a trip as Hoosier Philly. But when she won the Rachel Alexandra, she was on the lead and then taken back inside and had to be steered back again outside and then got carried out four or five wide turning into the stretch and still showed a lot of determination and won anyway. I think she's kind of an underrated filly. I agree with Brendan Walsh that she's not getting the credit that she deserves. The Alley's look or the Alice look. Uh, Alice is actually the granddaughter of Ike Thrash, uh, the owner. Uh, that's how you pronounce it. The Alice look. She surprised Brad Cox when she beat Chop Chop last time out in the Silver Bullet Day, and she surprised Florent Giroux as well because he opted to ride Chop Chop instead of the Alice look. Uh, the Alice look was very game throughout the stretch and turned back Chop Chop to win. You know, still not sure how good she is, but the number was good. And in that pantheon of Brad Cox uh, three-year-old fillies, uh, she at least uh, is worth a mention. And then who's your filly? Okay. I did not like the trip at all. I, I can't say that it's the only reason why she lost, uh, because when I go back and I look at her work pattern, she was off quite a long time. She was off from the Goldenrod in November, November 26th. Uh, her first published work after that was Jan 28th. All right. So that's two full months. That's 60 days off. And then she only had three breezes before she ran in the Rachel Alexandra. And in hearing Tom talk, she does everything so easily. The first work back, he said, we just wanted to get a nice, easy work into her. So that leaves only two works to really get anything from a fitness perspective. And having watched the race, I think she needed the race. I really do. Plus, she had a, look, the pace was horribly slow. She stumbles at the start. Uh, Edgar Morales has got her behind horses. They're backing up in her face, slowing the pace down. She wants to go. She has to steady. She wants to go. She has to steady. Very easy for a filly like that to get discouraged behind that slow of a pace and, and getting bottled up and constantly wanting to go and having to be restrained. So, yeah, she made a move at the top of the stretch, but then I think she came up short as well. I think she's going to bounce back in a pretty big way. Look, if I'm, Ed, if I'm Tom Amos, I tell Edgar Morales, look, don't mess around. Go. Just go. It, it, we, we know who's going to set the pace, probably Christian Doro, but be right there. If she's as good as they think she is, right, she can have a high cruising speed. She doesn't have to be ridden like she's been ridden in the past, where she's three and four wide and ridden like she's a one to ten shot and just kind of gallop around there until they get to the top of the stretch. No, this time you got to press on the gas a little bit and get her into the race and don't go three wide or four wide. Don't get behind horses. Just go. And I think she'll probably win. All right. Um, we're going to go in different directions on there. But uh, the story is who's your filly uh, to see how she bounces back or not. All right. The next race on the card is, of course, the um, uh, Louisiana Derby. You spoke of Brad Cox and the just a tremendous run. He's on at the fairgrounds where he's winning, as, as you said, 41 percent. He's got three in here including the obvious favorite, instant coffee. Um, Randy, my take on – the first thing I notice about this race is there's very little speed in here. Yes. Um, I don't know who's going to go to the front. I think actually the, the one-horse Shopper's Revenge could uh, for Steve Asimusen might set the pace because uh, set the pace two starts back at Oakland and then uh, got a, a, a bad break last time out at uh, again in an allowance race at Oakland. I wonder if instant coffee is going to be up against it a little bit from a pace standpoint in here. Uh, this is a horse that's going to be mid-pack to even further back uh, a little bit early. Uh, is he the best horse in the race? Could be. 
but I'm looking to possibly try to beat him. Um, and I'm interested in uh, the uh, from just from a strictly from a little bit of a pace uh, a price play. The two horses coming out of this fairgrounds allowance race, um, won by Dennington and Cagliostro, uh, was second in there. And, and Randy, I don't know uh, who from your team does the fairgrounds figures, but I'm, I'm sure you noticed had a very good number in there, 91 for Dennington. Um, so uh, uh, he also will be a little bit pace compromised, but uh, Cagliostro would probably be fairly close to the pace. And uh, you know, I'm and also uh, the Pletcher horse, you have to look at Kings Barnes as well. I know this is a huge step up from an allowance race at Tampa Bay Downs, but uh, he's done nothing wrong. He looked great, pulverizing uh, easier at Tampa uh, last time out. So those are some of my thoughts. Yours? Yeah, it, it, I, I love this race. I mean, it, it, you know, it doesn't have Forte in it, but it's a it's it's a very competitive race. It could go in a lot of different directions. A uh, little news right off the top. Tappet's Conquest is not going to run. Brad Cox just told me about 30 minutes ago. Uh, we're taping this on Wednesday. Tappet's Conquest is going to be rerouted to the wood where Cox is anticipating having three starters. Uh, he's already got Slip Mahoney and Hit Show. He'll probably leave Hit Show up there to run in the wood. So he'll have three starters. Tappet's Conquest will not run in the Louisiana Derby. Now, from a pace perspective, I totally agree with your uh, handicapping that there's very little early pace. I could see Shopper's Revenge and, and uh, Ricardo Santana, especially from the number one post, trying to use some speed. The only hesitance I have there is that even when he won two races back at Oakland Wire to Wire, he didn't jump pr- particularly quickly from the gate. Um, he's not a quick gate horse. And then, of course, last time he just got out. He just out and out missed the break. So there are some issues that Shopper's Revenge has had at the start, uh, where, where I think the pace is going to come from. I think he'll be close if he's not on the lead. But I'm expecting Kings Barnes to set the pace from post position number six. Two lifetime starts, both wins. Uh, the race at Gulfstream Park was a very fast-paced race by one-mile, one-turn standards at Gulfstream. It was not a particularly fast surface that day. No run-up to speak of in a mile at Gulfstream Park. And so fractionally speaking, that was a pretty solid pace that he was right on in that race. And then it was also a really quick pace for the day for Tampa Bay at a mile 70 in that allowance race that he ran in when he set three or four lengths off the pace and just blew the field away. With the lack of speed in here, I haven't talked to Pletcher, but I could totally see Flavian Pratt and Kings Barnes trying to capitalize on that and, and going to the lead. And I also firmly expect Jace's Road and Florent Giroux to be right up on the pace as well. He was two races back in the gun runner. Uh, it wasn't a particularly quick pace, but they have an outside post. They're going to have to use him a little bit anyway to try to get over. Uh, in the Southwest, it was a sloppy track, which he doesn't seem to like, but he was behind horses as well and didn't handle that. So I think they're going to put him right up there uh, close to the lead. I'm expecting Kings Barnes, Jace's Road to his outside, and Chopper's Revenge right behind them. And I agree with you in that I tried to beat Instant Coffee, if you remember, in the LeCompte. I tried to beat him with two fills. And I had a little flash of excitement at the top of the stretch when two fills went to the lead. And I also backed it up with my pocketbook. Uh, And I did not play an Instant Coffee two fills exactly. I had it the other way around. So I'm going to try to beat Instant Coffee again. Uh, I think, given the pace scenario, I think Kings Barnes is a strong wire-to-wire threat. And that's my exact, the Kings Barnes over instant coffee. About that allowance race you mentioned, I do the figs for the fairgrounds. 
I went back and double checked that 91 buyer speed figure for Dennington and it's solid. There's nothing wrong with that number. Uh, from a class perspective, if you're a class handicapper, you can look at Dennington against stakes competition, you know, in the LeCompte when he didn't do very well and the Smarty Jones when he was well beaten. And maybe you can, you know, put a black mark against him for that. But if you're a speed figure guy, then Dennington just may be on the improve. And that's a good number that he ran last time out, along with uh, Cagliostro. Speaking of two fills, he runs Saturday in what technically they call it the Jeff Ruby Stakes. Really should be the Jeff Ruby Stakes Stakes. Stakes, yes. Yeah, and that's the real name of it. And nobody seems yeah. to catch on to that. Uh, anyways, yeah. okay, so two fills is in there, coming off a third-place finish in the Risen Star, making his debut over a synthetic surface. The 5-2 to two morning line favorite is Major Dude, trained by Todd Pletcher. And, you know, an interesting spot, and it's a smart spot for him to be in here. Because, Randy, as you mentioned earlier, Pletcher's so good at picking up derby points getting his horses into the races, race. Um, Major Dude runs in the top three. Uh, that would be enough to get him in the derby. Um, I can't go for this horse. Um, I know, you know, there is a, seems to be a correlation between turf and synthetic, but it doesn't always necessarily work that way. This is a grass horse. And I don't want a grass horse trying something new uh, for the first time in his career as the favorite in there. Um, I'm going to go for number four, Fantastic again. And, um, uh, I know he had a, a real easy trip in this Leonidas stakes last time out. But boy, uh, did he look good winning that. You could see the, the racing form comment, one for fun, impressive. And of all things, the Leonidas stakes has become a key race. Go figure, huh? Ray's Kane came out of that and won the Gotham. He was fifth. And Hayes Strike, who was last in the Leonidas stakes, came back this weekend, last weekend at Laurel and won the private term stakes. So, again, just looking for a little bit of an upset in here. Um, I'm going for Fantastic again. There's the Sandy Leone story in here with Congruent. Um, can Sandy Leone uh, win uh, another Kentucky Derby two straight years with a big long shot? Well, he's got a shot in here with Congruent. He's probably already made the field for the Derby with his win in um, James Battaglia. Your horse, two fills, is interesting, but uh, has never been on synthetic, so he's a question mark to me. Those are my thoughts. What about you, Randy? Wouldn't it be amazing if Sandy Leone is back in the Kentucky Derby? Look, yeah. Congruent. Looked awfully good visually, uh, winning the prep for this, the, uh, the the Pataglia back on March the fourth. But that was an extremely odd race because if you if you watch that, uh, you know, as we know, as any handicapper knows, synthetics play closer to turf, as you pointed out, than they do dirt, and they are much less kind to early speed than a regular dirt surface is. Not to say you can't win wire to wire on synthetic, but it's it's not a speed favoring a, a track as regular dirt. And in the Bataglia, we saw what by Turfway Park standards for a mile and a 16th was an absolutely suicidal pace. 22.94 for the quarter, 45.93 for the half. And as a result, all the horses on the inside that were in the pace mix just literally put the brakes on around the second turn. And visually, then you saw all these horses just come flying on the outside, four or five wide. And you're like, wow, who is that? Whoa, who is that? And Congruent was one of those who circled the field, which from a ground loss perspective is going to boost his, his figure and some figure services. But that was the best part of the track to be on, given the way the pace was shaping up. By contrast, a horse named Scooby Quando took the inside route around the turn and got absolutely buried all the way around the second turn as the speed horses backed up in front of him, couldn't get out until about the 316th pole, 
and still finished pretty well to be second. Now, is he as good as Major Dude? Is he as good as Two Phils? You know, is he as good as Wadsworth, the Brad Coxworth in there who beat him a couple of races back? Maybe not, but for your exotics, for your, you know, your tries and your supers, you could do a lot worse than throwing, you know, Scooby Quando in there. Uh, you've got Mike Maker, who's won this race six times, who is in here with a horse named Maker's Candy, but that's probably a stretch. Um, now, about Major Dude, I, I, I got to root for him simply because I'm a Steely Dan guy and Major Dude is named after a Steely Dan song. But anyway, this horse is not bred to be a turf horse at all. He's bred to be dirt. Now, Bolt Doro, the sire, can go both ways, but he's out of a distorted humor mare. And that's why they started this horse early in his career on dirt. He broke his maiden at Monmouth on dirt. Then he ran in the Sanford, didn't run very well. Then he ran in the Sapling, it was a distant third. And Todd Fletcher told us at the time that he thought he was underachieving on dirt. So he said, I'll just work him on grass as an experiment and see what happens. And what happened was that he really thought the horse traveled better and ran better in that workout, at least on turf, than he had been training on dirt. So he said, okay, I'm going to, that's that experiment worked. Now I'm going to run him on the grass. And lo and behold, at 10 to 1, he wins the Pilgrim and he's been on turf ever since. Now, fast forward. Kentucky Derby time is rolling around. You know, Spendthrift Farm undoubtedly has a little bit of Derby fever. The horse just ran a big speed figure in winning the Kitten's Joy at Gulfstream Park. He's got dirt pedigree. Why not go back to the dirt now, or at least the synthetic, and, and give him a chance and see if it's all turf or if he can maybe succeed uh, on synthetic. If he wins here, uh, you know, Pletcher's loaded, obviously, but I think it's probably a pretty safe bet that they'll go ahead and give the Kentucky Derby a shot. I love his post position. I think he's the horse to beat. I don't know if he deserves to be a heavy, heavy favorite. I can totally agree with you that Fantastic, again, uh, looks pretty good on paper as well. I uh, don't like the post for two fills being out there. I'm not sure about him at a mile and an eighth. I do not have a strong opinion about this race at all. We're doing it, by the way, uh, on NBC. We're, we're showing uh, Fairgrounds Oaks and the Louisiana Derby and Jeff Ruby Stakes is part of uh, sort of like a triple header on Saturday. What uh, what time and which of the affiliates? Uh -oh. I was afraid you were going to ask me that, Bill. <laughs> what? Uh, okay. Um, I don't know. Check I your local know. listings. Check your local listings. I'm pretty sure it's between five and six. No, I'm not sure. Because the Jeff Ruby well, the race goes off at 625. It's so. between six and 7 p.m. Eastern time. Okay. So check your local listings as to which of the NBC family of networks that we will be on. But we'll be in the studio from Stanford, Connecticut. I knew you were going to ask you that. Yeah, certainly check that out. Okay. Um, check your uh, local listings, but uh, always worth tuning in, Randy and Jerry Bailey. Hey, by the way, the XBTV workout of the week is in, and it's National Treasure working five furlongs at Santa Anita on March 19th. You remember him. He was the morning line favorite scratched in the San Felipe because of a minor foot issue. Uh, trainer um, Tim Yakteen has said that he's coming back next in the bluegrass. So how did he do in his work? Take a look. All the thrills. Fraction of the bills. Experience the power of the partnership. Change your life, make new friends, and compete at the highest level of thoroughbred racing. 
West Point Thoroughbreds, the gold standard in racing partnerships. Visit westpointtb.com. The TDN Riders Room is brought to you by West Point Thoroughbreds. Joining a West Point Thoroughbreds partnership can vault you into the world of instant camaraderie among people surrounding high-class horses and stakes action for a fraction of the cost of trying to do it on your own. West Point Thoroughbreds was active at the OBS March sale this week, buying two-year-olds now ready for syndication, including a $115,000 colt by Catalina Cruiser and a $900,000 colt by Carlin, as well as a filly by Connect for $120,000. Their 200, uh, excuse me, their 2022 runners were all sold out. But if you'd like syndication info for 2023, contact Debbie Finley at Debbie at WestPointTB.com. You can learn more about West Point Thoroughbreds at WestPointTB.com. Well, this week's Remy Bullock cartoon is in. It airs, uh, doesn't air, it re- is in the TDN every Friday. And uh, I like this one this week. Um, You see a... a, a Horses uh, drinking out of a stream, and they're boy, are they happy! And there, everybody's got a big. What's going on? Well, if you look up, you see that there was a leak at the Woodford Distillery, and bourbon is leaking into the stream. Randy, you've had some experience with horses and alcohol. Tell us more. <laughs> yeah, as I was telling you guys earlier, back in the early 1980s, there was a horse, a stakes horse, a pretty nice horse, a sprinter, uh, and he had a, uh, a, a funny little uh, a dietary habit where. For dessert, after his dinner every day, uh, the trainer and his wife would give the horse a bottle of Budweiser, and he would clench the bottle of Budweiser in his teeth, and he would throw his head back and, mm-hmm. and you know, kill it, basically, and then toss the beer bottle into the shed room. They did that. Uh, local TV loved it. They always had camera people come out to show this horse having his, having his daily Budweiser, and it seemed to do him good. And believe it or not, I kid you not, the horse's name was Last Buzz. Don't know if he ever got buzzed, but he loved his Budweiser. Now, I wonder with Heiser, if you test positive for Budweiser after a race, could that be a sanction? Maybe we'll ask Lisa Lazarus that next time we have her on the show. Well, that's a wrap for this week's TDN Writers Room podcast. I want to thank Randy Moss. Zoe Kamen, as I said, will be back next week. That's a one edition. CNBC is the network, Bill. CNBC. CNBC from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Saturday. There you go. All right. There you go. Well, thank you, Randy Moss. And once again, I want to thank our entire crew. This week consisted of Randy, uh, our Green Group guest of the week, Lisa Lazarus. Zoe Cadden will be back next week. And our editors, Nathan Wilkinson, Ali LaRocca, Anthony LaRocca, our producer, Patty Wolf, and our associate producer, Katie Petruniak. We'll see you next week. Enjoy the fairgrounds races and the big Jeff Ruby stakes stakes at Turfway Park. See you next week.